Hey folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. Our guest is Bob Mayer. He's written a book called Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements. The book's a few years old, and I just got around to reading it when the new reissue of the Replacements album, Tim, was released just just a month or so ago. Uh, they've re- remixed the album from scratch, and just got me sort of curious back into the world of the replacements records which i had bought as they all sort of came out and you know kind of grew up with and then uh to read this book and uh, listen to this new reissue made me real curious to kind of fill in some of the gaps and to uh, turn the listeners on to some of the story which was just even more crazy than I ever thought. Uh, it's just a great book. It's well-researched. It's really well-balanced. That's what I say in the podcast. He took the research. He took the first-person uh, witness, eyewitness accounts and kind of put it all into historical perspective and analyzed it just just enough to, to make sense of it all. And it's really a, a truly one-of-a-kind story. So... Uh, cannot recommend this book enough. Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements by Bob Mayer. Uh, hope you'll enjoy it. And uh, that's it. A few other things coming up. Check thebfmu.org slash Michael for the list of upcoming guests. And here's me and Bob Mayer. Okay, there are the replacements, and uh, Bob Mayer joins us on the phone. Bob, good morning. Morning. How are you, Michael? I'm doing great. You are a double Grammy winner, a regular contributor to the New York Times and Mojo, the music writer at the Commercial Appeal. Met you. You're a longtime music writer. Today we are here to talk about all things replacements. Where do you keep the Grammys? Where do they go? Uh, they're on a shelf uh, in my office, uh, sort of a bookshelf. I didn't really have anywhere better to put them. I, I'd always heard the, there was a guy in Nashville who had. Uh, built a window uh, in his house, lit it up so that everyone from the street <laughs> driving by could see it. But I thought that was a bit excessive. So I've just got them on my bookshelf behind my uh, my desk. Very humble. Are, do you have to, uh, are those free? I mean, a dumb question, but do they give them to you? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, they're, they're like an actual uh, trophy that you get. And uh, it was funny because, you know, the first one I won for uh, the replacements, um, D- Dead Man's Pop, but the award ceremony was still kind of in the midst of covid so it was a virtual ceremony so uh you know i didn't really experience it and they just kind of sent it in the mail and then the uh next one i won earlier this year was for wilco for the yankee hotel foxtrot uh, box set that i did the liner notes to and that one i actually went to the ceremony and did the red carpet and everything and then it was the same thing though they mail you the trophy because obviously <laughs> you know a lot of people travel from there and it's a pretty big hunky thing so i don't i think you know they uh, you kind of pose with a, a generic trophy <laughs> and mm. so you walk around with that backstage and on the thing but as soon as you get off the stage they grab it polish it and give it to the next person so <laughs> so they may they basically mail them to you a few months after you win either gotcha. way i always w- was wondering about that so we're here to talk about the replacements and i want to start with the book trouble boys the true story of the replacements i sort of put off reading this book for a while uh and i really just it was the the Tim reissue that that made me want to read the book. I, and I, it's a band that I grew up listening to and hearing stories about. And I sort of, I don't know. I think on some level, I just did not really want to know the truth. And uh, eventually, my I I had to read the book and 
you know, my suspicions were, were sort of confirmed. I, I would say that this may be the most well-balanced music book I've ever read. The story is well told. The facts are there to support the story. They're not just shoehorned in because you did so much research. You know, so I, I really do believe there that some authors sort of need to shoehorn every fact in, even if it doesn't sort of make have any context you know so there's this history it's a very it's very t- it's very tempting you know when you've done the work and found yeah. out all this good stuff you want to you want to shove it in there but that's why god made editors to kind of uh, dissuade <laughs> you from you know throwing every last bit of factual info into a book and kill the narrative in the process Right. I have all these index cards. I want to use them. Yeah. So there's this history. There are first person accounts. There's enough analysis to sort of tie it up and fill in the blanks. And the reader goes on this journey of no replacements existing to their creation, their rise, their fall, and no replacements existing again when they break up. Uh, and right. all the sort of questions and uh, emotional and procedural things are answered. I don't want to talk about sort of how to write a book, but briefly, how much work was involved in putting Trouble Boys together? Well, a lot. I mean, I and and again, it's my first book, uh, and I had uh, sort of a sense, you know, the replacements when I when I took on the project or I wanted to do the project. My my premise was that you know replacements are in you know they're not a huge band but they certainly were not obscure they were written about extensively covered have been you know uh, their chapter in michael azarod's our band could be your life about them there had been another previous oral history but i still felt like as much as you know ink had been spilled on the band there was still something at the kind of heart of the story that was unexplained or uh, you know still missing for me and so that's kind of was the premise that i went in with it and you know my my sort of thought was, well, I, to do this right, I really have to have the band and the key principles involved in the story participate. And, you know, I was lucky in that I think enough time had passed from the band breaking up and from, you know, Bob Stinson, the co-founder of the band's death, where Paul and Tommy principally were really ready to kind of do that because I don't think they or really anybody involved with the band had spent a lot of time reflecting on what the experience of the replacements had been. You know, as soon as it was over, they moved on to solo careers or other bands or other parts of their lives. And I just think, you know, you know, they hadn't hadn't really taken stock in that way or, or nobody had come along to sort of force them to take stock. Um, so, you know, I started in 2007 talking to the band and kind of negotiating the, uh, the access and the arrangement and just sort of pitching myself as the guy to do it. And then we finally agreed in 08 and then I sold the book in 09, but it didn't come out to 2016. So there was a lot of years in between spent researching some of that got sort of elongated a little artificially because the band obviously, as you know, reunited in 2013 uh, for a couple of years. And so we kind of were waiting to see how that, you know, landed and, and, and that became part of the book's epilogue as well. And so the book, they basically sort of broke up again uh, in the summer of 2015 and the book came out in, in, in early 2016. So it was kind of perfect timing, I suppose, in a way the, the sort of period was at the end of the replacement sentence there. And then the book came out. So yeah, it was a lot of years of work. Uh, some of it was because, you know, I have other jobs and I wasn't solely dedicated to writing it. Some of it was because I was going to Minneapolis, talking to the band, talking to family. Um, and some of it was, it took a while for people to kind of trust and open up, you know, some of the some of the key revelations of the book or things that I found out didn't come on the first interview or the second interview or the third interview with somebody, but, you know, it was like the fourth interview and that's where the breakthrough happened. And so, you know, it was just kind of hanging in there and, and really sort of uh, learning the story from all angles and talking to people and building a kind of rapport and trust. And that's really, I think, ultimately why the book, if it works, it works because of the kind of time I put into uh, cultivating those relationships. Yeah, I do think it's all on the page. And you end up with a 400-plus uh, page book. And 
I just want to stress again, you do not feel bludgeoned by this research. It's all just kind of flows uh, into this book. So the earliest part of the book talks about the band members' family roots, their, their each guy's childhood, and within a few pages, I was like, holy crap, you know, it's, it, it, is, it is intense, and I was not prepared yeah. for it. And of course, in retrospect, it all makes sense, but it's pretty heavy. Uh, it, so it was, it was all new to me. Was it mind-blowing to you, or did you have a feeling there was that much turmoil? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the yes, I mean, I think, you know, when I, there was an impulse, I think, historically with replacements to look at them as wild and zany and, you know, these guys are crazy, but never to ask why, you know, what was sort of driving their behavior, what was driving the music, yeah. what was driving this, the kind of unique chemistry of this band. So on a kind of instinctual level, I, I felt like I knew that, but it wasn't until I really, and I had a sense from, again, as I say, I kind of worked up to doing the book. So I had some relationships with the, some of the members of the band, some of the people around them. So I had a kind of hints and sense that there was more deeper and darker stuff to the story. And, you know, I'm not one who necessarily believes every rock and roll story in particular, you know, you need to labor over the childhoods and the pasts of these guys. But the, the reality is this, these guys did start the band as kids, you know, as teenagers. And it was clear that what was driving them to start this band, it was what was driving and propelling the kind of unique chemistry of the four of them really was rooted in some ways in where they came from and what they had experienced and what their family backgrounds were. And so, you know, again, I don't labor over that, but it, it, it there's a through line from, you know, some of the, the, the personal background stuff. I mean, certainly in Bob's case, the abuse and his whole sort of journey through the through the juvenile, you know, penal system and through group homes and through addiction and all that kind of stuff that sort of led very specifically to him grabbing a guitar and grabbing Tommy and putting a bass in his hands. And then, you know, on the other side, Paul Westerberg coming from his own background and Chris Moore. So they each had brought, you know, that kind of um and and as I was to find out, with everything having to do with the replacements, there was very little separation from, you know, what the band was, what the music was, and what and who they were and who, where they came from. You know, some some bands, it's a it's an act, it's a it's a it's a creative outlet, it's you know it's something else. But with the replacements, you know, I, and I think that's part of the appeal for people is, you know, who they were and what they were came out totally in their music and 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 in what you heard in the band, and so mm. it was very, you know, those things were part parcel yeah just the fact that none of the four guys had a high school diploma is <laughs> is mind-blowing i mean just reading or a driver's that, license <laughs> yeah i or mean a it's driver's just, license it's not really, the 1920s you know, so. it's you know it, it it's amazing so what you know we're talking about what made them who they were and and what the music was and it's a rare combination of talent and chemistry and inspiration and some luck right they got their cassette tape uh, to, yeah, to truly the right person at the exact right time, but there's also this strange and I and, and I was really struck by this their ambition, their alcoholism. The, the ambition thing is a little I want to drill down on, but I mean, that's, sure, this is a little bit of an oversimplification. But what am I missing in like the the equation that made them who they were? A kind of desperation, I think, ultimately, mm. um, you know, and, and I think Westerberg puts it that the first section of the book is called Jail, Death, or Janitor. And that was an answer that Westerberg gave to a question years later of, you know, where would you guys have been without the band, without the replacements? And it was jail, death, or janitor, you know, and in Bob's case, jail had already happened. In Tommy's case, he was headed that way. In Paul's case, he had been a janitor and, you know, and, and death, obviously, in Bob's case, eventually came. So, you know, I, I think, and, and the band sort of staved that off for many years. So I think, yeah, there was some real... Um, 
uh, skin in the game for those guys. And, and I think there was a, like you say, early on, I mean, the replacements, uh, you know, kind of have this anti-ambition or they were anti-careerists and they shot themselves in the foot. But that was later. I think early on, there was a real ambition and drive to kind of rise above what was hmm. – probably going to be a very limited and boring existence for them if not for music if not for the band and if not for finding each other so i think that was that was a drive certainly early on and as you put it they got very lucky or you know whatever you want to call it destiny or fate to find peter jesperson who was a big mover and shaker in minneapolis a, a manager of orfolk records a co-founder of twin tone who immediately took to them and you know really kind of kept them going and, and you know they, they couldn't have fallen into better hands as it were and and I, I i think it's very unlikely that the replacements would have lasted very long and certainly not had the career they had if it hadn't been for peter so you know as with any great rock and roll story or or or, or, or tale there 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 is a good bit of luck and and kind of fate involved in it and and certainly they were they benefited from that so yeah but i think there was a desperation and drive there at the beginning that uh that sort of, you know, that their reputation later maybe didn't doesn't hint at. Yeah, interesting. Like, don't undervalue desperation as a rock and roll motivation. Is yeah, I hadn't put that together. So, the the book is full of tales of drunken debauchery. I mean, it's nonstop, even relative to other rock and roll bands. It's pretty unique, and sometimes it's kind of funny, but the level of partying even surprised me. And like you said earlier, sometimes we don't know what's legend and what's real. Did it surprise you, even knowing what you knew going in? Yeah, I mean, the, with, as with most, I think, Oh, with a lot of rock books, what you find is people are kind of demythologizing and you're sort of puncturing holes in the legend or the myth. In, in the case of The Replacements, it turned out that, you know, the things that seemed the most ridiculous actually were true <laughs> and, uh, and and maybe even beyond that, uh, what, the, what the reputation was. So it was sort of, you know, kind of strange in that sense. And, and I think, but again, for me, that the anecdotal stuff, the antics... It, it's great color and it, and it, and certainly was real and, and a part and parcel of what they were and how they presented themselves and what I think people in some way responded to, you know, which maybe wasn't always the best thing. But, but yeah, it, again, it was all part of this bigger thing uh, of who they were. And I think, you know, that, again, as I said, there wasn't a whole lot of separation between them as people and them as a rock and roll band. So, you know, that you can't sort of compartmentalize them. And in a way, for a biographer, that was a good thing because it was just, like you say, this sort of rolling adventure from start to finish, uh, uh, you know, 12 years of the band and eight albums. And it's like there was a lot of uh, a lot of colorful things that happened, a lot of creative things that happened uh, as well that, you know, kind of tend to get overshadowed, I think, a little bit by the by the antics and, and, mm. and the stories. But um, yeah, no, it was one of those funny things is I went in thinking, you know, X, Y, and Z are going to turn out to be false or exaggerated. And, and it was <laughs> quite the opposite. Not only were they, uh, all those things turned out to be true, but even, you know, plus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's tons of examples. Some of this stuff is, it seems like it's designed to test people that they wanted to sure. hang out with or work with. And there were examples in the book of crazy stuff like, you know, and some of it was just designed to freak people out, like money, lighting money on fire, trashing buses sure. and, and dressing rooms. And, and like I said, a lot of it was beyond what I'd imagine. Uh, were, when you were talking to the eyewitnesses of, of this stuff, were people recalling it with horror or with humor? <laughs> it depended who you two were talking to. I mean, I think there's this idea that the replacements wreaked havoc on a lot of lives. And I suppose in the moment, there were a few people they did. But I think most of the stuff they did was more self-harm than, you know, harming anyone else uh, or harming their career. Uh, you know, th that's the funny thing, too, about... Um, 
uh, a story like this where the principals maybe you know don't remember everything they did they did by virtue of the fact that like you know they didn't have a high school diploma or a driver's license they couldn't get to gigs there was always a kind of coterie of people around them you know road managers tour managers friends uh and then obviously as they got into the major label ranks more and more people around them so it was interesting to hear uh you know what the all those differing perspectives were and that certainly uh yeah there was a mix of humor and horror as people described that stuff or embarrassment or whatever but again i think the people that chose to work with the replacements you know peter jesperson or Michael Hill, who was uh, their A&R man at Warner Brothers for the whole time. I mean, I think they, people like that had to realize the band's greatness and their creative potential and were willing to put up with, you know, more than most people would have. I don't think you know anybody get, at that time would have got into the replacements business, so-called, if they weren't able to handle it. And, and I think most of the people that did, you know, did it because they loved the band and they believed in them uh, and, you know, were very often disappointed, but, but still stuck with it, uh, you know, for a band that, uh, you know, caused a lot of havoc they they had long-running relationships you know peter for six seven years michael for six seven years their attorney georgia regis for you know a dozen years so it, it, you would think they would have burned through people but mostly the people stuck with them because you know paul's songs were so great and the band could on its day be really incredible uh and and hmm. so that was that was an interesting thing and, and a lot of times yeah the behavior was a test a test of loyalty see who wants to you know it, it, paul's paul is a complicated guy and i think even though a lot of what he did was genuine and real, there was a calculation there in terms of his behavior and testing people. And some of it had to do with, you know, trust issues going back uh, to childhood or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, again, it, that all became, you know, on stage and off, it all became part of this extended performance of being the replacements. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It is amazing that all the while through this behavior, they were, the music was steadily growing. And it's also interesting that lots of different people have lots of different opinions about when musically the band peaked. And for some people, it's yeah. really, really early, late. It could be middle. It's a, it's a, I can't think of another band that there's so much disagreement about uh, what what the peak is. To me, there was this sort of train wreck thing about the replacements. And that's never what appealed to the band to me like i don't i don't i'd rather yeah. see, see a band be good than be bad i guess you know so i always well, and then i think weird. i think that's that's what you know part of what we have done in the wake of the book with the with the reissue series that we've done a replacement stuff is kind of try and shine a light on that creative part because as i say i do think in some ways the band's creativity uh was a little bit overshadowed and and quality of their work was a little overshadowed by the reputation which became this big ballooning mythos you know over time but yeah i mean i think you know you i hate to make the comparison but when you look at the you know eight replacements albums in 12 years and you look at the evolution of the music you know there's a few bands you could compare it to but i think you know it's not crazy to sort of compare it to the beatles you know in terms of if you look at a band that starts out in the kind of post-punk kind of even sort of hardcore with the first two albums, you know, Sorry Ma and Stink. And I think Stink is almost a sort of pastiche of hardcore. And then they get into this transitional period with Hoot Nanny, and then they really hit this beautiful purple patch with Let It Be and Tim and Please to Meet Me. And then it shifts again, I think, with the last, you know, with Don't Tell a Soul, which becomes this sort of grander pop effort. And then by the last album, which is almost not a band album, it becomes a singer-songwriter thing. And you look at the journey of the band and as Paul as a writer, uh, it's not only compelling to kind of take that journey with them, but you also get fans, like you say, you know, some people dropped out of the replacements after the first two records, and then some people really only 
like the middle three. And then you got some people that came in at their kind of commercial peak, which was don't tell a soul and work their way backwards. So it's a really interesting yeah. creative journey. And, and they're an interesting band in terms of how that evolution sort of creates different kinds of fans. And I think, you know, I don't, I don't, I didn't really put it in the book, but I think you get bands who are influenced by the replacements, but different parts of the replacements. You know, you look at a band like Green Day, you know, definitely was tapped into the Sorry Ma era, I think, in terms of, you know, that really smart punk pop songwriting. And then there's other bands that, you know, obviously were hugely influenced by Let It Be and Tim and that kind of stuff. And then other bands that like love the last record all shook down and, you know, that almost kind of is spawned many other groups. So it's, I think they're unique in that way. And I think, again, like you say, that creativity maybe sometimes gets overshadowed by the, all the, all the stories of mayhem. Let's get back to the band's ambition, because I, it is hard to, to look at what we're talking about now, and you, you put out a case that they were really, really interested in having a straight-up hit record. They wanted to have a hit record. Yeah, I mean, they they were from that era of, I mean, they're you know, Paul and Bob were born in the at the end of the '50s, and they came up on sort of '60s and '70s AM gold. And uh, Paul, in particular, I think, had a facility and also an affection for for you know pop records and pop 45 of, the, of, of his day, you know, and so that's what success was, you know, in a way. And particularly for someone who was a writer, you know, I think he admired songwriters and pop songwriters. Uh, so I think you know there there was always this you know, paradox, dichotomy, whatever struggle internally with the desire to have a hit and be successful and, 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 but also do things completely on their own terms. And in the music business, it's sort of hard to do that. At some point you have to sacrifice or, you know, shake hands or play the game or whatever you want, at least in that old model of the record business and that old music uh, industry, which doesn't really exist anymore. So, you know, that, that was part of the story of this book too, was kind of painting that picture of the world that the replacements came up in, you know, personally and economically and socially. And, and then also the world of the music business they, that they entered into really at the start of the, of the late seventies and the early eighties. And I think there was that desire always with them, but you know, having a desire and being able to to execute it sort of, uh, you know, and, and I think inherently in Paul's songs and as a writer, you know, we all know he has a, a great ability to write a memorable song or a great pop song even, but pop radio at the time in the 80s, and they're a band that essentially existed in the 80s, you know, they started in December of, of 79 and broke up in, in, in the middle of 91. So their career really was through the 80s. You know, it was the era of MTV. It was the era of big FM radio, and uh, and I think the replacements. You know, as Paul said, we were we were ten years too late or ten years too early. But you know, they sort of weren't a band for their times, and so I think the hits didn't come, and the commercial success didn't come in their lifetime. But I think the the longevity and the value of their songs is is you know is being recognized certainly over time now. Yeah, but they put themselves in an impossible position. You know, they were setting themselves right. up to be anti-everything, and I'm overstating, but they were also trying to be mainstream. They were self-sabotaging, but they had ambition. You know, it's sort of hard. I could see how that could pull their own minds apart, you know? Yeah, and it, and it did ultimately, and it and it's what I think, you know, I it, you know the first four records obviously came out on an indie and, and twin tone, their hometown label. There wasn't a whole lot, you know, and they built the, the funny thing about the replacements is from the moment that you know Peter Jesperson kind of got their tape and started working with them, and they signed to twin tone, they were on an upward trajectory, and he, and by the time they got to the major labels, uh, you know, in '85 with Tim, uh, you know that that trajectory continued. I mean, every record sold more than the last until they got to the final record, you know. 
but it was never quite enough to break them. I mean, I think that really the sort of litmus test or the breaking point was don't tell a soul. They sort of went for it on that record yeah. and, you know, did this and acquiesced in a way that they hadn't really in terms of, um, you know, what they were going to do and handing the record off to a, you know, hit radio mixer to mix it. And, and they did have a small hit and they did sell the most records they did, but it, it wasn't enough success ultimately to keep them going. And so I think, you know, Paul says it in the book, he says, you know, we weren't made of the stuff that makes pop records, which, you know, is true in a way, or at least of that time. And so I think, you know, but, but to get to that point, it was an eight, 10 year journey. And I think it's hard for any band to last 10 years, 11 years without a real tangible success. Um, you know, and, and, and that's when the doubt starts to creep in. And I think the replacements always had doubt, you know, and, and, and they were kind of of that mindset anyway. And so, so yeah, I, I'm not totally of the belief. There's always this idea that if the replacements had behaved better, if they had done this, if they'd done that, if they'd been more agreeable and played the game, so to speak, that maybe they, they would have had success and would have had a big chart hit. And it's, you know, it's not inconceivable to think that. I mean, they got, they had a top 50 hit. Could they have got a top 40 hit? I don't know if they had that particular song, that one song that would have broke them at that time. And, you know, you, you look at like another band who was a contemporaries of theirs, friends of theirs, the Georgia Satellites, you know, great band. They had one kind of quasi novelty hit. It's a great song. Keep your hands to yourself. It got the number two on the charts, but. You know, when I interviewed Dan Baird from the Georgia Satellites, he said, yeah, that's great, you know, and I have this song and it's kept me in the chips and it's good. But, you know, that's one song that people remember us for in a way, the wider public with Westerberg, with the replacements, there's 20 songs that people latched onto. And, you know, this song broke my heart. That song, you know, is so important to me. So I think the replacements had a, they just had, success was always going to be different for them. It wasn't going to be what the record company wanted or what their managers wanted, or even what some of their fans wanted, you know, like uh, for them to be the biggest rock and roll band in America. And I think <laughs> there was a lot of reasons for that, you know, but, uh, but I think, like you say, this, the story of the replacements is, it wasn't a sprint, it's a marathon. And I think over the last 30, 40 years, I think, you know, they're a lot bigger than a lot of bands that sold a lot more records than they did at the time now. Yeah, I agree. There are a lot of different narratives about them. And one of them is that they sort of were robbed, you know, for some reason, which I to I agree with you totally. That's just not that's just not true. I do detect right. a little bit of sour grapes, you know, I think and then this happens bands look at bands that came after them that have a trace of their sound and and think that they invented whatever, you know, every, it goes back to little Richard. It goes back to everybody who, you know, just thinks sure. everyone following them ripped them off. Of course, you know, right. uh, and I definitely look at the band as, yeah, they're really talented, but there's lots and lots of really talented people who don't ever make a dime or, you know, uh, so they're, yeah, yeah. they're, no, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they sort of got their shot. You know, the record company spent a fortune on them and, you know, they got their shot. Do you think that's how they see it in the end that like they, 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 you know, that they're not well, ripped I, off? I, I, yeah, I mean, I think there was a period where that felt very uh, acutely painful, probably to Westerberg. I mean, there's a there's a bit in the book in the epilogue where it's kind of the mid '90s, and he's ended his solo deal with Warner Brothers, and he's going to see a therapist to shrink, and uh, you know, he has tells the shrink, you know, oh, yeah, there's all these bands that sound like me, you know, Nirvana sounds like me, or Green Day sounds like me, or the Goo Goo Dolls sound like me, all these bands that were having hits at the time, and. And it's true, they're all, you know, probably most or all of them were directly or indirectly influenced by them. And, you know, he's thinking this, the shrink thinks he's crazy. He's like, who the hell are you? You know, so it's a kind of, 
I think that was a, probably a much more acute and painful thing, particularly for Westerberg at a certain point in the 90s. I think over time and certainly with the validation of the band reuniting in 2013 to 2015, where they're, you know, headlining festivals and playing, you know, sold out shows at, at Forest Hills and, and, and they've got 13, 14,000 people sort of singing these songs back to them, you know, as the generational anthems they are now. I think that sort of eased a lot of that, but I am sure for a while after the breakup of the band, it was, it was difficult, you know, and, and, you know, that was part of the replacement story too, is uh, it's like uh, by the time the world was sort of ready and, and the radio formats in terms of alternative radio would have been ready to embrace a band like the replacements as they were maybe in 85, uh, they weren't making that kind of music, you know, by the time they got to all shook down or even don't tell a soul, they were a different band and Paul was going in a different direction. So the world was now ready for alternative music, but mm. they really weren't that kind of band anymore or weren't a band at all. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you talk about luck and timing in, in a lot of ways, they were very lucky and they did have a, a good timing, but on the other hand, they, they were very unlucky and they just missed, you know, the sweet spot where they could have succeeded and it would have maybe kept the band going. But, you know, I think, as I say, I think most bands have a kind of, um, limited shelf life and for, for a band as combustible as sort of, you know, uh, w weird and wild and knotted as the replacements to have lasted 12 years and eight albums, I think was a small miracle in and of itself, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The book is called Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements, and uh, Bob Mayer is the author. Uh, replacementsbook.com is the place to go for information. I really think the book transcends the story of this band and uh, even if you don't know the replacements, I think folks would enjoy reading the book just because it's a history of indie rock world and it's a history of the 80s and it's a history of that that baby boomer kids, you know, lifestyle that, like you said, it's changed really quickly. That that was kind of the last generation of people to, to be brought up uh, that way. It's kind of a tragic book. It, I think it's an important book. Were you a changed person after writing this book? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just the experience of doing a book, but also, you know, connecting with everybody in this story and, um, you know, given the amount of years I worked and sort of eventually kind of became involved with the band as I have been the last seven years, you know, post biography as a kind of archivist and reissue producer with them. And so, yeah, I mean, it's impacted my life in a lot of ways, but, you know, just living the the story of the band and personal stories of the guys. I mean, I, I'm glad you say that it, it sort of transcends the sort of typical rock book thing. And that was always my idea is like, I always felt this is a compelling story of, of, of four people uh, or more, you know, uh, of this band and this, and this time who just happened to be in a rock band. You know what I mean? It's, it, it, yeah. uh, th that's almost uh, secondary to, to, to the fact that it's a, it's a compelling kind of tale of, of, you know, human beings and their foibles and, and what happens where, you know, you, you kind of discover something that you love and, and have this bonding. It's, it's really about, you know, brotherhoods, ultimately the book, it's about families. It's about, you know, kind of the families you're born into and the families you create in terms of the band specifically and the, you know, extended family of the band and how those relationships change and, and how they can kind of preserve you and help you. And then they sour and it kind of breaks you. And so it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a journey really about people, I think. I mean, I know that sounds sort of uh, kind of modeling or whatever or hokey, but it really is. I mean, you know, if it and, and and that's not to say that all rock books are that. You know, sometimes rock books are about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But I think in this case, there were there was a, there was a little bit more going on in terms of who these guys were. 
Yeah, I totally agree. All right, let's talk about the brand new reissue of Tim, which is what brought me back to the the book in the first place. I really like it, and I think it's necessary, and I think that's a really important word here. Sometimes these remix projects can be money grabs, straight-up money grabs. Uh, this was yeah. not. I always thought there was something weird going on with the thinness of the mix you know, from the day it came out. I just thought, what a weird-sounding record. So to me, this kind of restores this to perhaps what it should have been do you agree with that yeah i mean obviously you know uh, the kind of the the idea of this whole reissue series and we've done you know four box sets and a, and a live record and a series of other you know kind of uh, offshoot projects was always to offer an alternate view or expand the understanding creatively of what the band you know had done and 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 you know and through my research in the book that really kind of came about is that i had access to the twin tone archives and the warner brothers archives and i was like you know, there's a lot of really great stuff here that informed the book. And wouldn't it be great if the fans and, 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 you know, music lovers could hear this stuff. And so, you know, that was kind of how the whole thing started. Um, with regard to Tim, you know, when you look back at the replacements recording career, there was only two records that they were ever really dissatisfied with. And those were the two records where they were kind of least involved in the mix. And that was um, Don't Tell a Soul and uh, Tim. And, you know, uh, in 2019, we had the opportunity to kind of go back and do a remix of Don't Tell a Soul. We'll let Matt Wallace, who had actually produced the album, worked on it for a year, um, finish his mix that he had started and really didn't get a chance to do. And so, that was an easy one because that was a record, even though it was the band's best-selling album, it was kind of their least loved. And I think a lot of that had to do with the production, but specifically the mix, which sort of was fairly dated and was geared to getting them on the radio in 1989, which it sort of did, but I think it made the album sort of suffer in the kind of larger historical sense. And so, you know, we had great success with that. Obviously, I won the Grammy, the album in the box set did really well. And so, you know, it took a few more years for us to go back to Tim because I think Tim, even with its sonic flaws, is probably considered one of their two best albums. You know, it's sort of the uh, the songs in which Westerberg's reputation rests. And so that was, we had a little more trepidation going into that because we knew, you know, with Don't Tell Us All, frankly, people, you know, a lot of people didn't like it, th that mix and knew it needed it. So it was easier to convince people to do that. I think with Tim, it's a little bit more of a sacred cow. And so messing with it was always going to be a, a little bit more fraught. But the reality is and was, it was a kind of odd sounding record. Tommy Ramone, who produced it, you know, he produced a great sounding record, as it turns out. And Steve Felstead, who engineered it, captured all the sounds on tape. But I think Tommy ended up really mixing that by himself, which wasn't something he always did. And I think freed from the kind of aesthetic confines of the Ramones, he did some things that he wouldn't normally do. It's, you know, you listen to the original mix and it's just kind of layered in this particular kind of reverb and it's very mono sounding and, and i think in a way it dilutes the power of the songs and yet the song still you know came through because there's such amazing there's such amazing material on that so we kind of saw the the opportunity mix tim this year as as kind of the other necessary thing to do with the band's catalog and you know the band was in agreement with it and really the only person we thought should do it was tommy ramon's partner and the guy who had worked with him on all, all the ramon's records and really was kind of the the person who was at one point going to mix tim originally and that was ed stasium and so Ed really sort of rebuilt the record from scratch, you know, uh, and then uh, remixed it and also went through the original tapes, all the multi-tracks and added little bits and pieces. And I think what you have now with the with the Tim remix or the Let It Be Bleed edition, as we call it, is is kind of what a record much closer to what the band sounded like at that time in terms of their force and power and what 
what their creative intention was with the record all, all the way through. And, and so, yeah, so it, I, I don't recommend going and uh, remixing a classic album to most people because it was really daunting and it took a long time. And, and, you know, we were, we spent, you know, a better part of this last year on that, but I think the results and the response has been incredible. So, so yeah, I mean, I think it was, like I say, with that, Don't Tell a Soul and Tim were the, really the two that needed uh, the, the, the chance to be rethought and remixed. Did anyone know for sure what was on the tapes that they were what was on there was going to yield a sound that was so much richer and fuller? Did you know that until? Oh, you yeah, put- well, we we didn't. That was kind of the thing. Like a lot of things with the replacements, so much had been built up over the years in terms of you know kind of this mythology about why that record sounded that way. I mean, for years, Paul would say that oh, you know, he mic'd my amp that was broken. I had a broken speaker, you know, so that, you know, so we thought, well, are these sounds even on tape? Or we didn't know if the reverb that was on the record had been baked into the original tracks or any of that stuff. So it wasn't until about a year and a half ago that myself and Jason Jones, who's uh, handles the band's A&R for Rhino uh, Records, um, went in and just kind of listened to the multi-tracks. And much to our relief, uh, we could tell even in just putting up flat mixes of it that, yeah, no, this stuff is here and this record sounds great and there is a real opportunity to do this. But that was another reason why we <laughs> we kind of put that off because we were afraid that, you know, we were afraid the raw material wouldn't be there. But as it turned out, no, it's uh, quite the opposite. It's yeah. a, a fantastic sounding record, you know, actually. And uh, and it just needed, uh, you know, another perspective in, in, the, in the case of Ed Stasium to kind of bring that all out into the mix. Yeah, sonically, it's truly um, amazing. If you're, you know, so familiar with the record as so many of us are, you've heard it a million times, and then to hear it again with just this slight sonic difference, it it is really a revelation to listen to it, and uh, I, I really, really enjoyed it. So this is their first major label record. What do you think? Do you do you have a feeling what Sire's expectations were going in? Well, I think. You know, in 85, people kind of forget that the way the replacements got signed is Michael Hill wanted had wanted to work for Warner Brothers and had been trying to sign them for a while. And Warner Brothers wasn't really sort of buying it. And it was Seymour Stein of Sire who saw them and sort of swooped in and Sire being a subsidiary of Warner Brothers and brought Michael Hill in. So there was always, you know, I don't think Warner Brothers had big expectations. I mean, there over time, I think expectations got built probably over the next couple of records because people saw the, you know, incredible quality and power of Westerberg songwriting and saw the appeal of the band live, you know, when they were certainly on. So I think the expectations grew. I think for this first record, there wasn't a ton of expectations and, and, and it didn't sell a, a, a whole lot of copies, but the response critically, the perception of them as being a kind of cutting edge band, you know, they played on Saturday Night Live. They were the first uh, in the first Rolling Stone hot issue in 1986 as the hot band. So, I mean, I think the expectations got met, but, you know, alternative music in 1985 was not a big you know, going commercial concern, it was going to be baby steps. And I think that's the way, you know, Warner Brothers in 1984, 85, you're thinking of Madonna, Van Halen, ZZ Tops, you know, selling tens and tens of millions of records uh, with these big, big 80 sounding albums. You know, the replacements were never going to be that. I think the expectations grew over time, you know, into 80, 87, 89, you know, with the replacements. I think early on with Tim, you know, expectations got met. And I think in a way, it, the expectations got exceeded by Paul's songs. You know, you think about the material that's on Tim in terms of, you know, here comes a regular and and little mascara and bastards of young and 
you know, all the great, you know, Westerberg songs, I think people realize, wow, this guy's a really major talent and this band really has the potential. So I think it, it built expectations, if, if, if nothing else. So there's a new mix. There's a remaster of the old mix. There's 15 demos and unreleased songs and alternate versions. And there's a live disc. Do you have a feeling who the project is reaching? Is it old fans who are reconnecting? Is it new, younger people? Is it some mixture? Well, yeah, it's some mixture. I mean, it's interest, been interesting. You know, this is the, as I say, we started this kind of series in 2017 with the, uh, you know, previously unreleased uh, live record, Live at Maxwell's for Sale is the name of that. And then we did a, you know, the, the Dead Man's Pop, the Don't Tell a Soul kind of reimagining. And then we did expanded versions of Please to Meet Me and their first album, Sorry Ma. So we've kind of had a gauge over the last five, six years, you know, what this what the sales have been, which have been great, and what the response has been, which have been great. And what's been heartening, I think, to me, and I think is a kind of hallmark of why the replacements continue to be, um, you know, kind of beloved and continue to have a kind of relevance is that we are seeing a lot of younger listeners. You know, we did a release event in Los Angeles for the for the Tim record where we got a kind of cover band to play and we had a we're spinning the record and all that sort of stuff. And I would say, you know, this place was packed out and it was probably 50% was under 30. Uh, uh, so it's it's interesting to see that, you know, the replacements, certainly they do have their 50 plus and 60 plus fan base, you know, the people that have been probably with them f- for the beginning or, or, you know, since the 80s. But there's a whole new generation of, of fans. And I've seen even in the, you know, whatever, it's eight years since the book came out and we've been doing these projects, you see this kind of successive generations uh, discovering them. And I think particularly with Tim, that's kind of really, I think for the younger audience, that's maybe even more so than Let It Be in a weird way. That's the record that, you know, has has always been kind of the 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 big one for that demographic and so us putting this you know new mix out you know we've really seen a kind of incredible um you know response with that younger crowd and i think that's why you know they they the replacements continue to be cool because you know younger people continue to dis- discover them it's not just the same same old fans that are sticking with them although that's you know part of the part of the foundation too yeah uh, am i right that chris didn't really participate in the book uh, not initially he was, I, we did some interviews and then, you know, he kind of bowed out and then, but more recently with the sorry Ma project, he was involved and uh, did some interviews for that. So, yeah, I mean, Chris, obviously his end in the band was sort of painful and, and I think, you know, he was sort of fired or quit or however you want to put it at the tail end. So there was a little residue of that as I came to find out, you know, you, when you write a book about a band, you're also kind of, acting as an intermediary between a lot of people, including band members who uh, haven't talked to each other in a while and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, you sort of get wrapped up in in, in the replacement sort of saga, which which I certainly did. And, and, and But I tried to, you know, with, with the book, obviously represent him because I think he was a key kind of grounding force in the band and, you know, certainly the most normal one, which isn't a high bar in the replacements, but, you know, he, he, he was, he was an important figure in the band until he kind of wasn't towards the end and, and, and that sort of precipitated his departure. But, but yeah, I mean, I, it was important to get his voice in, even though he wasn't as involved as Paul and Tommy and some of the other folks. I think the uh, later records, the later recordings that don't feature him would have been better. I mean, this is in my fantasy head. If, they had you know figured a way to to use what chris had to offer rather than right. yeah but this idea of chris leaving and, and the circumstances made me and him not really wanting to take part in the reunion etc made me think that chris has 
like a disease called replacements PTSD. And <laughs> and do Paul and Tommy have it also? Well, I mean, I think in Chris's case, you know, it's also he became a very successful, you know, fine artist. Uh, you know, he after the band, uh, you know, it took him a while to sort of find his feet. But when he did, you know, his pieces sell for tens of thousands of dollars and he's really respected in this world and has his own creative identity outside of the replacements. Uh, and I think, you know, as Paul puts it, you know, the replacements was something he did on his way to being an artist, uh, you know, a fine artist with, with the other guys, with Paul and Tommy in particular, um, you know, there was maybe a time where they thought, well, the replacements isn't going to be the biggest thing I do, but of course the, the, the band has kind of continued to grow and be important. So I think they recognized and accepted that ultimately, you know, when they chose to do the reunion. And, and so I think their relationship with it as they're more full-time musicians or were, you know, is different than Chris's. Um, and, and, and it really, they were the only ones, they were the ones, Paul and Tommy who were in it from the beginning to the end. Uh, and so I think, yeah. So I think everybody has a different relationship to the band in terms of like their PTSD. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to sort of psychoanalyze Westerberg. I mean, after the reunion, he did one record with Juliana Hatfield and basically hasn't been heard from again, you know, publicly anyway. Uh, and, you know, he's for all intents and purposes retired um, and doesn't do music anymore. And, and, you know, he lives the kind of life where he can kind of do that and, and you know, sees enough from his catalog and, and, and publishing that he doesn't need to do shows or be out there. And I think in a way that's what he's always wanted, you know, um, you know, I think that again, I, I think the reunion was both a validation and a, and a kind of completion of whatever was left of the replacements. And in a good way, him and his manager have sort of passed the baton to us, myself and Jason at Rhino. And so we've been able to kind of, keep and cultivate the replacements catalog and do these reissues and, and sort of keep the fire burning, so to speak for the band. But I think, um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think in Paul's case, he's probably done with it. Tommy obviously continues on as a singer songwriter and, and, you know, is putting out really great work and is still touring and all that sort of stuff and coming, coming to his own, you know, he was obviously the youngest one by seven, eight years in the band. And so everything for him has been kind of a later discovery. And, you know, he had this, uh, he started, you know, after replacements, he started bash and pop, which was a great band and perfect, but then he went to, be sort of Axl Rose's lieutenant in Guns N' Roses for 17 years. Uh, and so now he's kind of resumed his solo career. So I think there's obviously Tommy's kind of the last one going. Uh, Paul's retired. Chris is an artist. Slim, unfortunately, has health stuff. And, and, and you know, Bob's passed on and Steve Foley's passed on. So, you know, Tommy's the last one kind of carrying it out mm. on the road and, and on record. But uh, so I don't know. Is that, you could you could say maybe there's been some residual damage, you know, from being in the replacements, I think, for everybody. But um, But I think everybody kind of ended up you know taking their own path in life too yeah well you talk about trying to sort of psychoanalyze the dynamics and that's one thing i took from the book is that it's just hard to be in a band it's harder than people think i think people think you know you're in a band you have money you have fun it should be easy but spending 20 hours a day you know five feet from somebody you're in a van you're in a restaurant you're in the motel room you're in the dressing room you're on the stage and you're trying to collaborate creatively it's just a lot harder than people think it is and in some ways it just drives you crazy and when you have the origin story that the guys in the replacements have it's like an explosive chemistry equation yeah well and also i think particularly for the band you know the the band really got going those guys were 18 19 tommy yeah. was 13 and you know you're in a band for 12 years you know you start in your teens and then you're in your 30s and you've got you're married you have kids you've 
lived this life. I mean, you know, it, it would sort of be like, I don't know about you. I didn't hang out at 30 with the same people I was hanging out when I was, you know, 16, 17 necessarily, uh, or, 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 and, and I was never forced to be stuck with them in a van for 12 years either. You know, so I think, you know, people change over time. And I think it's easier, obviously for bands that have great success and there's millions of dollars. That's a, you know, it, it, it that's a kind of, it gives you a cushion and a motivation, you know, to kind of, and keep they can going take five buses instead of one van. You know? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the alternate version of the story is if the replacements had been more successful as a band, I think they could have integrated Tommy as a songwriter, Chris as a songwriter, Paul could have had a parallel solo career, you know, all that sort of stuff could have happened. Uh, but not with, not at the level they were at, you know what I mean? Um, as you see, you know, a lot of bands do that, you know, big bands are successful. They take years off in between things. They all pursue solo stuff. Then they come back and do the thing that, you know, kind of sort of got them there. The replacements, they never, never quite got to that level. And, and, and so I think, you know, the, when the, when the, when the breaking point came, it came completely. And, you know, that's why they didn't get back together for 22 through 23 years or whatever. And when, by the time they did, it was really just down to Paul and Tommy and the sort of the band sort of fell apart along the way, you know, first Bob and then Chris. And um, so I think, yeah, I mean, success, success has its ups and downs, but I think it makes it possible for, you know, bands to continue on maybe longer than a normal lifespan. And I think the replacements lifespan was very intense, you know, regardless of any of that other stuff. I just think, you know, some bands aren't destined to be around forever. Like I say, you know, the fact that we look back on, you know, as I wrote that book, probably my biggest takeaway and the shock to me was that they were able to last as long as they did and put out as much good music and evolve as a band because, you know, they could have broken up the first, first week, you know, (laughs) it was just as likely and probably more likely in some ways so yeah theirs is a kind of uh the the replacement's longevity is sort of a miracle yeah well the book sort of lays it out from their beginnings through the way the band worked and the way the band broke up that what made them so unique is also this thing that you know was just impossible to to live yeah Yeah, it was just like and that's you know that's tough when your your entire reason for existing (laughs) is like a thing that that drives people apart you know i mean that it was just tough on the psyche i'm sure uh let's play a track from tim what's your favorite uh favorite thing on this new reissue well, I mean, I think the track, uh, one of the tracks that kind of has the, the most power and difference is Little Mascara, which, uh, you know, has kind of been extended by about 45 seconds. There's a lot more Bob Stinson in it, and you just hear a lot more. It's like, I think, one of those real standouts in terms of the differences between the original mix. So I'd love to hear a Little Mascara. All right. Let's hear that. Uh, Bob Mayer, thank you for joining us. I I really learned so much, and uh, I just really enjoyed the book. I really uh, enjoyed the new reissue. Uh, the book, again, is called Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements. You can go to replacementsbook.com for more information about what Bob's up to and what he's done in the past and what he's doing in the future, etc. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I just loved this. Man, thank you for having me, Michael. I appreciate it. 